We're going to start with James 1, 2 to 4. It's up there for you, but you'll want to be, have, you want to have your Bibles for when I mention other passages. Let's stand together for the word reading of the holy inerrant authoritative word of God. Hear the word of God to you this morning. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives. You may be seated. Let's pray one more time for God's blessing. Father, this is a heavy subject. Some of us know it more intimately than others, and yet maybe for some of us it's something that's coming. Maybe it's something we're coming out of or something we've been through. But we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts, help us to receive this message with faith, that we might lovingly submit to our Heavenly Father, to you, who loves us so much that you won't let us stay the way we are, that you wanna, want us to be more like Jesus. So Lord, use this message to that very end to direct us and how to benefit from the suffering that you allow in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let me ask you this. My wife always likes to say it. Let me ask you this. Have you ever prayed to God asking him to help you grow in his grace? To develop some wonderful Christian graces like patience? Oh Lord, give me patience. Long-suffering, compassion, kindness, gentleness, meekness, humility, mercy, that's enough for now. Have you ever asked him this? Have you ever said, Lord, use me for your glory. I want to bring glory to Jesus. You ever say that? Then guess how God answers such prayers. The way that God answers those kind of prayers is by exercising you in the school of suffering. He uses the, the pain, the trials, the suffering and afflictions of this life to make you the man or the woman of God that he wants you to be and that you deep in your heart long to be. You know, when you see those heroes of faith from the, the Bible times or modern times that you say, man, I want some of that. Well, when you see what those saints had to go through to get some of that, then you realize that what you're asking God for is to use suffering and affliction and trials in your life. And the truth is, there is no shortcut for this. That's the thing. There's no expediting the process. There's an old saying, and it's more true than we like it to be, but it is true, no pain, no gain. You know, when you see those six packs, that didn't happen overnight. It was because someone went through lots of pain to mold their body to look that way. 
Spurgeon once said this, and I, I love the way he puts this. He said so many things about suffering, but this is a nice, succinct thing I took from him. He said, the Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. Isn't that awesome? Certainly, you think of a guy like the Apostle Paul. If you want to read about his sufferings, by the way, turn to 2 Corinthians 11. Not now, but read it later and you will say, Mamma me. And yet, look how the Lord used him. Really powerful missionary and apostle. We all know, especially of us, us who do any kind of gardening, that there's no lush growth without rain. Can't happen. There's no firm physique without strenuous exercise. And there's no, listen, this is important. There's no deep abiding faith that just oozes the wisdom and the grace and the glory of God without hardship, without trials, and without suffering. This morning I want to point out four major benefits of affliction in the life of the saints. And I want you to see it's in the life of the saints just one quick word about this so the rest of it will make sense to you. Suffering doesn't in and of itself make people better. Nietzsche was completely wrong when he said, what, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Well, that's not true for everybody, is it? It, it matters completely how you suffer. In other words, are you going to suffer in faith Trusting in the goodness of God despite what your eyes see, despite what your body feels at the time? And will you submit to him and learn the lessons he wants you to learn from it? Then you will become better. You'll be sweet like a wine that gets, like a grape that gets crushed and becomes this delicious wine. Or are you going to allow suffering to make you into a bitter, shriveled up, angry person? That's all dependent on whether you have faith and you're exercising faith in Jesus or not. So I want you to understand these benefits that we're about to list from the word of God are for the saints. In other words, saints are those who trust in the finished work of Jesus. You with me? All right, let's take a look at the first benefit. The first thing, and I'm going to start a little bit light and we're going to get a little heavier as we go. But the, oh, not that it's not all heavy. So the first one we're going to see, the first benefit I want to list is that it leads us back to God when we've been wandering. That's the first thing suffering and affliction does is it leads us back to the good shepherd when we have wandered. And I'll give you a good verse for this. Psalm 119, verse 67. King David, who had his great share of suffering, by the way, said this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. It's one of my favorites. King David is making a very refreshingly honest comment here, a confession, as it were. He's acknowledging to God an all too common malady or sickness of the, of the human heart on this side of the fall. And here's what it is. He's confessing. Very often when, when things are going smoothly, we tend to drift from dependency and intimacy with God into self-reliance and disobedience to God. That's what he's saying. Sometimes it takes sorrow and suffering to snap us out of it. To wake us up, to drive us back to our knees. And into the loving arms of our great God and Savior. Who's been waiting. 
for us to do just that. My longest quote this morning comes from uh, a dear brother in the Lord who is filled with wisdom. Like his name says, he's packed with wisdom, pun intended. His name is J.I. Packer, and it comes from his wonderful book, Knowing God. And um, I've never quoted this particular quote in a sermon before, but I'm going to now. And it's a little long, so I want you to just kind of try to pay attention here because it's, it's worth its weight in spiritual gold, as it were. Here's what he says. The reason why the Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock, a firm defense, and a sure refuge and help for the weak is that God spends so much of his time bringing home to us that we are weak, both mentally and morally, and dare not trust ourselves to find or to follow the right road. When we walk along, and here's what I like, this is really good. When we walk along a clear road feeling fine, and someone takes our arm to help us, as likely as not, we shall impatiently shake him off. But when we are caught in a rough country in the dark, with a storm getting up, and our strength is spent, and someone takes our arm to help us, we shall thankfully lean on him. Therefore, he takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence, to trust in himself. In the classical scriptural phrase for the secret of the godly man's life, to wait on the Lord. I love that. In other words, when things are going well, I'll simplify it for you, we don't want his help. It's only when we're going through rough times that when God offers his hand, then we're like, hey, thanks. I need that. We've seen in our mini-series on the means of grace so far that God uses his word because he speaks through it. He uses his people, other Christians, and he uses his supper, the Lord's Supper, to speak into our lives, to cause us to grow in his grace and in his knowledge. And I would like to put it this way. There are faithful friends, the Bible, other Christians, the Lord's Supper. But sometimes we don't listen to our good friends, do we? Sometimes we need the friend. You know which one I'm talking about. Mr. Affliction. Because sometimes he's the only one that can get our attention. And I'll tell you this much, he insists on it. I know this is an overused quote by C.S. Lewis, but I, I can't help, I, can't, I just could not prevent myself from using it because he puts it this way to us. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Doesn't he? Sometimes it's the only thing that gets our attention and centers us back on the will and the word of our Father in heaven. So that's the first benefit. It leads us back to God when we've gone astray. Second benefit, it helps us to appreciate the value of Scripture more deeply. You know, when, when your life is going well and things are all smooth, sometimes the Bible gets a little dusty. You with me? Let's go to King David again in Psalm 19, verse 71 and 72, he puts it this way. It was good for me to be afflicted. Wow, anybody ever say that? It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And then verse 72, they go together. 
The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Wow. Now listen, this is important because this touches upon um, some of the big issues of suffering in the Christian's life. Why does David say it was good for him to be afflicted? I want to I make this clear. Is he, saying it, is he saying it's good for him to be afflicted because it's a good thing to be chased by a jealous, sinful king who wants to take your life? Like he had to run away from Saul? And by the way, scholars believe that was like years of time. It wasn't like a couple weeks. Is it because being forced to hide in a musty, dark, wet cave is a wonderful thing that we should all desire? Gee, I'd love to live in a cave. A literal one. Not the back cave. That's a cool cave. That's not the kind David was hiding in. It was wet, musty, and stinking. Is it because it was good to lose a child like David had to do? And by the way, David lost an infant child. And he also lost adult children. Is David saying those things? It was good? No. No, of course not. David is not saying that at all. What David is saying, read it carefully. He's saying it was good for him to be afflicted so that, he says, so that I might learn your decrees. In other words, it's the results of the suffering that's good. Not the actual trial itself. In other words, what comes out of it, or even more accurately, and I want to make sure I get this right, how God used a sad, hurtful experience to bring about something beautiful, something good, a deeper, truer knowledge of his decrees and of his word and of he himself through it. That's why, listen, That's why, in other words, it would sound crazy otherwise for Jesus to say to us, rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted for my name's sake. That would be crazy if he just said because of it. Is persecution a good thing? Is it great when you go to the Voice of Martyrs website and find out that our brothers and sisters even today are being murdered and slaughtered because they believe in Jesus? Jesus isn't saying rejoice because of that. He's saying rejoice because of because of the results of those things. And that's two things in that passage, just in passing. One is rejoice because that's how they treated the prophets before you. So in other words, you're being treated like that, that means you belong to me. You're the genuine article. And that's a blessing to know you're really his. Amen? The second reason, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward where? In heaven. Because this world is not our home. We are just a passing through. And compared to eternity, it's a blip on the screen. Take James 1, 2 that we read, and we will talk a little bit more about in a moment. James says, count it all joy. Now, that's the one I've talked to a lot of brothers and sisters. If they say, seriously, count it all joy. Yeah, but again, notice why he says we can count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. Because it develops in us, what? Perseverance. And so on, which we'll look at in more detail in a moment. In the case of Psalm 119, 71, 72, David is glorying in the result that affliction had in his life. It caused him to learn God's word and value it more than all worldly riches. You know, I talked about this when we dealt with the word 
You know, how do you get in a point, to a point in your life where you value the word of God more than silver or gold? I'll tell you one way. When you're refined through the fire, when you've been in the furnace, and you open up the word of God, and all of a sudden, it goes from uh, black and white, as it were, to color. Full color. Or like going to see a movie in 3D. These words that didn't mean as much to you before, all of a sudden, lo and behold, you're hearing the voice of God. Like I've mentioned this before, my friend bought me this plaque when I was a young believer, and it was this, this, this elephant and a person trying to push the elephant. It was really silly, but underneath it said, I could do all things through Christ that gives me strength. And I've read that verse a million times, and it's like, yeah, that's true, yeah, nice. One day I was going through it. I was suffering severely, at least for me. And I looked over at that on the wall, and all of a sudden, those words, I went, aha. That's what that means. Let's not forget the person who wrote that, by the way, was in a prison, <laughs> in shackles, when he said, I could do all things. <laughs> Important. Andrew Bonar puts it this way. He says, how fast we learn in the day of sorrow. Scripture shines out in a new radiance. Every verse seems to contain a sunbeam. Every promise stands out in illuminated splendor. Things hard to be understood become in a moment plain. See, you want to understand Scripture better? You just need a little suffering. All right, I'll move to the third one. Third thing it does for us is it develops in us a deeper, more glorious Christ-like character. This is one we've all been waiting for, I hope, because this is the powerful one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Tim Keller tells a story that he, when he used to teach at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philly, um, he and his wife would have to, uh, I was going to say, suffer through um, listening to the seminarians' sermons. So they heard tons of seminarians give messages from God's word. And this is what his wife finally turned to him one day. I, I can feel her pain. She said, it's amazing how you can have sermons that are technically just right and yet utterly forgettable. As soon as they're done, I don't remember a thing that was just said. And then she added, the words don't have any weight. There's no glory to them. They don't last. And so Tim asked his wife, why do you think? And this was her answer. I don't think a lot of these people have suffered. Or at least if they have, they aren't preaching out of their suffering. And that's not to pick on young men training. I was one of them myself. And, and that, that's my whole point. You can't shortcut it. You're only going to gain that kind of experience through life, right? Through walking with Jesus. But the point is, I think that's sometimes we wonder why. What, what's missing? It's that weight, right? It's that experiential pain that they have yet to walk through. So it's good to see, or at least it is for me as a child of God, to see that far from suffering and hardship being a sign that God doesn't care or that God's not listening, it actually proves the opposite. It actually proves that he is so committed 
to our perfection in Christian character and graces that he will not stop until we look like Jesus. He is relentless, and we praise him for it if we know Jesus. We have to realize that when it's raining in secret places, God is growing inward graces. Try to remember that. The end goal of affliction in the Christian's life is maturity. It's completeness. As, as um, James said, that there will be no lack. Like young men preparing for the ministry who haven't had much experience in Christ's school of suffering, they're lacking depth and reality often. Like the social worker who's never known what it's like to not know where your next meal's coming from, to not know how, she's gonna get, how they're going to get money to pay the bills, the rent. They're lacking in experiential knowledge which can have a negative effect on their attitude toward their clients. How could they minister out of God's grace to others who have suffered if they know nothing of it? Or take the self-made man who lacks humility and teachableness because he's never experienced such pain and loss and perplexity that he can't help but humbly turn to God for help and assistance, and guidance. So here's the issue. When you've suffered loss yourself, you'll be much more of a help and a comfort to those who are suffering loss themselves. When you've known poverty and sickness, or you've faced hatred because of the color of your skin, then maybe you'd be able to be more sympathetic and understanding and loving with those who have and who have to do it every day. Listen, it'll never compare for me in this country as it does for my African-American brothers and sisters. But God gave me just enough of a taste when I lived in Iowa, where to them I, I was a darkie. And every time I, almost every time I met a new person, somehow my race came up. And I want to tell you, it gets old. And you get tired. And you start saying, can you just look at me like a man? I'm a man. Sometimes God takes us through this stuff so that when we look at our brother, we look at our sister, we're not so quick to dismiss their pain. It's real. And I guess when you are part of the majority culture, you don't really realize it, do you? Because it's not brought up all the time. Hey, you're white. Where are you from? No, no, where are you really from? Not a lot of white people get that. Sorry, I'm up on a little side. But there's still something we deal with here in the city. Charles Dickens, a lot of you would know his, some of his work like A Christmas Carol, you know, with Scrooge. Um, Oliver Twist, please say, nice and more. You know, a lot, a lot of good stuff he wrote, great expectations. But he once said this, suffering has been stronger than all other teaching and has taught me to understand what your heart used to be. And this is what he says I think is really telling. He says, I have been bent and broken, but I hope into a better shape. See, that's exactly what God tells us that he is committed to doing to his dearly loved children the ones he gave up his one and only son for, making them in better shape. And what shape is that? 
It's the shape of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. One from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. C.S. Lewis reminds us this. He has paid us the intolerable compliment. I love how refreshingly honest he is. God has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. Love in its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. Mere kindness, or we would say nowadays niceness, which tolerates anything except suffering in its object is, in that respect, at the opposite pole from love. Now listen, was that too deep for you? Because if it was, let me simplify it. God loves you just the way you are and too much to let you stay that way. You got that memo, right? Think of all our heroes of the faith, the ones we desire to be more like. They are all schooled in Christ's school of suffering. Their godly character was forged in the furnace of affliction. I wish I had time this morning, but I don't, so I'm just going to shoot a few off. King David, the Apostle Paul, modern times, Corey Ten Boone in a concentration camp because of her faith. Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her dear husband to martyrdom. And then, by the grace of God, goes back to those same people who killed her husband and shares the gospel with them. I only have to mention people like Joni Erickson Tata, who God has used in such a powerful way to those who have disabilities because of her suffering. I will mention a few things about Paul. Five times he received 40 lashes minus one. That's with a cat and nine tails on your back, by the way. Remember what Jesus faced? Five times. Three times he was beaten by rods. I don't know about you, but I hope never once in my life am I going to be beat by rods. Amen? Once he was stoned and left for dead, they're like, oh, he's dead. And they just left him there. And he gets up and goes to the next town and starts preaching. Another time he was shipwrecked. Many times he went without food. You get the picture. Leon Morris puts it this way. For Christians, little as we may like them, the fires of affliction are the place in which qualities of Christian character are forged. No one wants to suffer. No one looks forward to suffering. But the Christian cannot regard suffering as an unmitigated evil. He can agree that it is an evil, but he knows also that born in the right spirit, it is the means of an increasing Christ-likeness. I love that quote because it encapsulates this whole sermon, doesn't it? Diamonds, someone once said, are formed under great pressure and heat. This very much encouraged me. If these conditions do not exist, they're simply not formed. I like this. It's not that they'll be of low quality or smaller in size. They simply won't form. God brings his refining fire into our lives to create in us what he sees fit. When he sees our lack of character, he will bring into our lives what we need. So next time a fiery trial comes, thank God. He is producing exactly what he knows you need in your life. The only difference, this is cool, 
between a diamond and a piece of coal is pressure. <laughs> I'm only laughing because I'm like, have mercy, Lord. In order to get to that diamond state, I got to be under lots of pressure. Fourth and last thing, time's sake. Preachers like to preach. Bible, have mercy on you. Keep it brief. The last thing, and I, I, I do really like this one a lot because it gives me hope when I see suffering in my own life and in my life of my brothers and sisters. Uh, this reason encourages me the most. It prunes us in order that we might bear more fruit for God. John 15, 1 to 2, Jesus says, I'm the true vine, my father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, guess what he does? He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. <laughs> Jesus is saying that for true believers, for those who are truly united to him by faith, and thus they bear some spiritual fruit for God. He says they are pruned by his father so that they'll be even more fruitful. In other words, they'll be more lush, more full, and more abundant their fruit will be. Now, I couldn't help this analogy because it's a personal one. But I grew up uh, in Point Pleasant. In the, my backyard, we had this fig tree that was literally brought over from the old country. And the fig tree is as old as me. And as Pete will tell you, I'm really old. <laughs> and so I remember growing up, man, I would come back there and I would eat the fruit of that tree all growing up. And it was delicious. Well, a number of years back, I think it was after my dad had passed, we, my brother and I went in the backyard and this thing was gnarly looking. It was spindly, it was out of control, and it looked like mostly dead wood. And so it was, you know, it was obviously very emotional for both of us, and it was a little bit depressing. And so my brother had at it. And we're not professional pruners, by the way. Neither he nor I. And I mean, he hacked this thing up, man. He hacked it up to a nub. I mean, if, if you could personalize what a tree would be feeling, they'd be like, seriously, you got to leave something. But no, nah, man, he butchered it. As we would say in our house, they're butchers. But I'll tell you this much. When I went back that spring, and I, I do not use hyperbole, I'm not exaggerating, I know that tree my whole life, it was the fullest, most beautiful, lush, and fruit like you wouldn't believe. And I, I would go on to say it didn't just go back to its former glory, it was even better. I don't remember it being that huge and full ever. Here's a takeaway my dear brothers and sisters, when your life looks like a bloody, stubby mess, know that it will not always be like this. Your father is pruning you so that you'll be even more fruitful for his glory, for your own good, and for the blessing of others. How many of us have prayed, Lord, use me? Have you ever prayed? If you're a Christian this morning, you don't have to raise your hand. But have you ever said, Lord, use me? Here am I. Send me. Do you ever say, God, I, 
I just so much want to be more like Jesus, and I want to be of use to my brothers and sisters as, as we are all heading on this pilgrimage from this life to the life of the world to come. I want to be of use to your other children and encourage them in the faith, not discourage them in the faith. Do you ever say that? Or at least think that? Pray that? Well, I'm going to close with this. William Cowper, uh, he wrote a lot of hymns with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote a wonderful hymn called These Inward Trials. And uh, if you prayed that, he's going to show you uh, how God answers that prayer. It's, it's a little old Englishy, so I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray. Try, try to hang in there. This is what his, his prayer was. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost to drive me to despair. Now listen. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Cast out my feelings, laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me.